morning. Today's uh, reading is from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And you can follow along on page 6 of your bulletins. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene de la carta a los Efesios, capítulo 6, versículos 5 al 9. Esclavos, obedezcan a sus amos terrenales con respeto y temor, y con integridad de corazón, como a Cristo. No lo hagan solo cuando los estén mirando, como los que quieren ganarse el favor humano, sino como esclavos de Cristo, haciendo de todo corazón la voluntad de Dios. Sirvan de buena gana, como quien sirve al Señor y no a los hombres, sabiendo que el Señor recompensará a cada uno por el bien que haya hecho, sea esclavo o sea libre. Y ustedes, amos, correspondan a esta actitud de sus esclavos, dejando de amenazarlos. Recuerden que tanto ellos como ustedes tienen un mismo amo en el cielo y que con él no hay favoritismo. Thank you, Chris and Daniel. All right, fasten your seatbelts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're asking for your wisdom, for your kindness. We're asking for the softening of our hearts that we will be able to uh, hear from you and receive from you and learn from you, our great teacher, our master. And we pray your blessing upon this time that you'd bear fruit in our lives. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How does what you believe about God impact your relationship in this section is Ephesians, which we've been studying now for a couple of months. The Apostle Paul tells us that if your life is revolutionized by the story of God's self-sacrificing, self-submitting love for broken sinners like you and me, if your life is being revolutionized by that love, then we too, I too, you too, ought to live a life of love. Sacrificing and even submitting my own needs and agenda for the good of another person in our relationships between people in the church, in our relationships between husband and wife, in our relationships between parents and children, 
in our relationships between employer and employee. We looked at these sets of relationships over the past few weeks, and we're looking at the last one here now today. One of the signs, in other words, that we're starting to grasp the gospel is that it starts to become a joy for you to put other people before yourself. One of the signs that you're starting to get the gospel of grace, that you're internalizing it, that it's true to you, that Jesus is real to you, is that it starts to become a joy for you and me to die to my own need to be served and to lay down my life for someone else's good. Now, a second ago, some of you might have thought to yourself, hold on, hold on, rewind. I get the bigger point, but a minute ago you mentioned employers and employees, but that is definitely not what this passage says. It's talking about slaves, it's talking about masters, And that's not the same thing as an employee or an employer. Of course, then a second person jumps in and says, well, you haven't met my boss, have you? But I feel you. So what is up with this? Please tell me. Please tell me the Bible isn't saying that it is okay to own slaves. Okay, let's talk about it. And this is the way we're going to address this. We're going to see how Paul is doing really two things in this passage. Of course, we'll have Q&A afterwards, so feel free to remember or jot down different questions you might have. But what the Apostle is doing here in this passage, two things. Number one, planting seeds of social change. And secondly, fertilizing the fruit of faithful work. Planting seeds of social change. And secondly, fertilizing the fruit of faithful work. Let's look at the first part. Planting seeds of social change. You know, when we hear the Bible talk about slavery, you hear those words, slave, master, we immediately and understandably have images of the African slave trade in American history, or maybe more specifically, having just seen the movie recently, you have images from 12 years of slave in your mind, maybe dear Lupita holding up her Oscar, ways in which you are thinking about our historic experience here in this country, on this side of the world, and what the Bible is talking about. Understand this. It is important to know that there are actually some important differences between slavery as it was in the Roman world and the chattel slavery of American history. That this Greek word doulos, translated slave, in many cases was actually closer to what's often described as indentured servanthood. It was typically a voluntary agreement that a person entered into sometimes to work off a large unpayable debt since there was no such thing as bankruptcy protection at that time. It was rarely lifelong. The average length was about 10 years. Change of status out of slavery was actually quite common. It was almost never based upon race or kidnapping. Slaves were normally paid, and they were granted a lot of legal rights, a right to marry, to have a family, to own property, fair trials, different protections of the law. And in fact, surprisingly, a number of slaves we know from historical documents held high status in society. 
Some were doctors, some were administrators, some were civil officials. Many were laborers, it's true. Uh, But there were others who were the equivalent today of distinguished PhDs teaching families. And in fact, some actually became wealthier than their former patrons. And so when we hear a passage like this talk about slaves and masters and the dynamics of their relationship, we do need to be careful that we're not just directly comparing this passage to what we often have in our minds. Now, that being said, let's not romanticize slavery of any kind, of any kind. And let's not sugarcoat even what was the case in the institution of slavery in the ancient Roman world. After all, slavery in ancient Ephesus did involve the legal ownership of human lives. It did degrade them into being subhuman goods that were used exploited, traded. Slaves were, in the Roman world, regarded as things rather than as persons. As Aristotle famously said, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. They were generally viewed legally as being subhuman under the law. They couldn't just quit or change masters. Uh, They weren't mobile, in other words. They were treated harshly. Oftentimes they were abused, sometimes brutally, and sometimes unto death. And the Bible does clearly affirm that all human beings, without exception, are made in the image of God, having human dignity, and that it is a scripture that unequivocally condemns the theft and trade of human lives, period. And so there's still a tension here, even so. Which is why we rightly want Paul to just condemn this slavery outright, don't we? Why we want to ask, you know, why doesn't he care? Uh, Why didn't Paul just call the slaves to rise up against their owners? Or why didn't Paul, or for that matter, Jesus, explicitly command Christian slave owners to free their slaves? Why not call for abolition explicitly and immediately? Well, there are a couple things that we have to keep in mind, I think, that helps us orient ourselves to that very important question. First of all, it's important to remember, really, how insignificant Christians were in the Roman Empire. At this time, they had zero, zero political power or social influence. Their loyalty to Jesus and this scripture was essentially illegal, and that's why so many were martyred for their faith. It's almost like we have a modern American mindset in thinking through what kind of recourse a person might have to enact social change. Well, couldn't they just write a letter to their congressman? Couldn't they just stage a rally outside? Look, Paul doesn't say, like he wouldn't say to a North Korean or Cuban peasant, overthrow slavery, go ahead and do it, because all that would do is just get them killed. And if Christian masters had simply freed their slaves without wider social reforms already in place, most likely that would have condemned most of their slaves and their families to a life of poverty and to abuse. It's complicated. Secondly, this passage does reflect the Bible's promise that God can meet you in any station in life, 
even in the midst of the hardest of circumstances, which in God's eyes in time ought to change. But he can meet you anywhere and no matter how hard it might be. In other words, salvation is not ultimately tied to our social circumstances. This is good news, especially for those who are followers of Christ, but who are enslaved in poverty, who are under tyranny, who are under seeming hopelessness. You know, because it really doesn't help a Christian, for instance, in Syria to say your only hope is political overthrow. That even while we labor for social change, as we should in Jesus's name, the great power of the gospel, the greatest news in the world for dear brothers and sisters in those circumstances and conditions is this as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair from my head can fall without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's good news for anyone. Thirdly, this passage does indeed, we need to notice, plant seeds of social kingdom revolution. This passage, as does other parts of the New Testament, it it doesn't set out to abolish slavery directly, but what it does do is to seek to transform and eventually to abolish slavery from the inside. As one scholar, Fred Bruce, argued, he says this passage And passages in the Bible, like Ephesians 6, bring us, bring the church, bring society, bring individuals into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And that is because, embedded in this teaching, if we look closely, is this conviction, is this declaration that slaves and masters have equal dignity, equal justice, and equal accountability. Equal dignity. In verse 9, we're told that masters or masters are told that he who is both their master, the slave's master, and yours is in heaven. You have a God who actually reigns over both of you. You have the same status before God. The same Lord, the same judge who shows no partiality. It's an echo of what the apostle wrote earlier to another church in Galatia, Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or consider the book of Philemon, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a Christian slave master. 
And Paul doesn't command the master to release his runaway slave, Onesimus, but he does command him to radically change the way that he relates to Onesimus. He says, think of your slave as my son. After all, that is what Jesus has made us into, a family of Christ. Treat him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, he writes, as a dearly loved brother. He's very dear to me, Paul writes, but even dear to you, both as a man, as a brother in the Lord. As one commentator has written a message which thus united master and slave as brothers ipso facto issued its radical challenge to an institution which separated them as proprietor and and property. Therefore, it was only a matter of time. Slavery would be abolished from within. Not only equal dignity, but also equal justice. Masters are told, treat your slaves in the same way, in the same way as they are called to treat you. As Colossians 4 puts it, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. This would have been mind-blowing for those who heard it. Slaves were regarded as property, as a property of their masters, no justice for them. The idea that masters actually owed a debt of obligation of love, respect, and care was a revolutionary idea that only could have spawned forth from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equal accountability, not just equal dignity, justice, equal accountability. This idea that's taught here that both slave and master are under the same heavenly master. All Christians are slaves of Christ In the end of verse 9, there is no favoritism with Christ. He treats you the same. In other words, any slave owner that took this passage seriously, as Christian masters in Ephesus were called to, it would have radically transformed the way that slaves were treated. In fact, it would have made this institution of slavery in the Roman world untenable unsustainable in the long run, which is exactly what we eventually see happen. As Miroslav Volf, a professor at Yale University, writes that slavery wasn't initially directly abolished as a social institution, but it was, quote, emptied of its inner content through passages like this. That Paul has lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion that eventually destroyed slavery. Look, friends, we cannot defend or ignore the way that too many, far too many Christians for far too many generations ignored this social evil, even defended it, and even endorsed it. It took far too long, it did, for the church to rise up and to actively pursue abolition. Nevertheless, we can also recognize this reality. That without exception, every culture and society in history until the modern period has had slavery. And no one was saying the things that the Apostle Paul says until now. No one, and indeed, as another has written, only within Christianity 
did the idea eventually arise that slavery was an abominable institution to be abolished. So here we have not immediate change, but certainly and undeniably the planting of seeds of social change. But secondly, we also find here through Paul's writing the fertilizing of fruit of faithful work. He's fertilizing the fruit of faithful work. How do we apply this passage? You know, how, how, does this, how is it relevant at all to you and me today? I think the teaching in this passage can apply to a number of different kinds of relationships found in society. I think it best applies to really any relationship where one person clearly functions as a superior, there's a big power differential between two parties, and where there's a temptation, therefore, to abuse authority or to resist that authority. Any kind of relationship that can be described in that way. So it might include relationships between landlords and tenants. It might include relationships between government officials and citizens between law enforcement agents and community members, between a doctor, a therapist, and a patient, between teachers and students even. But I think the relationship where this passage applies maybe most naturally to and most directly to is that of a worker and her boss. And this is what the main idea that Paul puts before so provocatively and so helpfully to slaves, and eventually also to masters, to employees as well as to employers, no matter how big the gap in power and authority is between the one above and the one beneath. But here's the big question that the Apostle Paul raises. Whom do you think you are working for? Whom do you think you are working for? Paul's answer is found In this fashion, in verse 5, he says to slaves, obey as you would obey Christ. In verse 6, obey as slaves of Christ. In verse 7, serve as if you were serving the Lord, not people. He can't talk about the work and the responsibilities of either party without injecting the person of Jesus right at the center of it all. In fact, he says it much more explicitly in Colossians 3.24, a parallel passage to this one. He says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So you're going to get up in the morning tomorrow. And I don't know what you do for a living. Whether you go to the store, you walk out to the sidewalk, you take a seat in an office, you pick up your child whether you work in the home or out of the home for pay or not for pay, whatever you devote yourself to, even as a student, have you thought lately to yourself, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that I am ultimately serving. You're serving Jesus before you are serving anyone else. You are working for the Lord, not for men. And so do you cook a meal as if Jesus were going to eat it? Do you clean the basement as if Jesus were going to sleep there? Do you teach to educate as if Jesus were sitting in the class? Do you mend bodies as if Jesus were the patient? Do you clerk in the store with a smile as if Jesus were your customer buying groceries? Do you study as though Jesus were your primary subject? 
What is it for you? Is Jesus right in the forefront, not just in the background, in the forefront of what you see and what you do? I remember growing up, seeing everywhere, I don't think I see it anymore, as part of the, the cheesy decade called the 1980s, uh, a bumper sticker that I noticed, and it read like this. I don't know if you've seen it before. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. Of course, referring to Jesus. And I think I used to, at the time, think they were just talking about pastors. Yeah, they, they don't got no boss. I have a boss. Uh, But I think actually, for all its courtiness, maybe it's a helpful slogan for us to remember. My boss, your boss, all of our bosses, the one we're most accountable to, the one whose eyes we're working under, the audience for whom we labor, the customer whom we serve, the master that we're here to please is Jesus. And the practical difference that this mindset makes is so vast and so concrete. The Apostle Paul gives us a bunch of things. He says, slaves, therefore, if that's the case, if this is how you're looking at your work, if, dear friends, this is how you are looking at your daily work, then it means you ought to work with respect for those who have authority over you. Respect and fear is the language that the Apostle used here. That, no, not being servile and not giving in to their every whim, especially their unjust whim, but being respectful of their God-appointed authority, of being humble but being confident, honoring them, showing them reverence as part of your reverence to Christ. Secondly, it points out the value of our work, especially for those of us that struggle with a sense of drudgery to what we do. Suddenly, if I am serving Christ, then this gives my work incredible joy and meaning. Because what gives me a sense of dignity and value in my work is not just what I do, but for whom I am doing it. I've got to say, so many of us these days, we pass up wonderful work opportunities because we're expecting far too much for the work itself to give us more meaning than it's able to. When in fact, the meaning that makes your work meaningful is something you bring to your work through the Lord Jesus because you're found in him. Respect, value, diligence. Paul calls us to work wholeheartedly, not just doing the bare minimum, doing whatever you can get away with, giving yourself to just whatever the boss or your supervisor or manager doesn't see, then you just try not to do it. Rather, he says here, don't do it just to win their favor when their eye is in you. Literally, he says there, don't offer eye service as man pleasers but rather do things for the eyes of Jesus who sees all things. So work with all your heart. Work with diligence. And this is a call to personal sacrifice, isn't it? Because that does mean if you do that, you're not always going to get credit for what you do. But guess what? Jesus gives you credit. Jesus sees what you do. Diligence that helps us to understand 
that what you do in your work is part of your worship of Christ. But not only this, sincerity and integrity. Paul says work with sincerity of heart. Literally, singleness of heart with focus, not with dishonesty, hypocrisy. But in fact, even when your employer might be harsh or unfair, that you don't sabotage them or their company or their labor, but you come as a servant. It makes a difference in the way that you view evaluation. Whose opinion matters most in the end? You know, a lot of people work to please so many other people, parents, supervisors, peers, standards that who knows who created them, but it's sort of keeping up with the Joneses and having to keep up with standards that maybe you've internalized and now you're demanding that you strictly live up to them. Here we're told that Jesus is the one that rewards. Jesus is the one that gives you all that you need in life through himself. Whom are you serving? And how does it change the way you work today? Paul also has things to say to employers as well, those in the position of a superior. He says this radical thing. He says, care for them and be a servant unto them. You notice this in verse 9. He says, look, treat your slaves in the same way. Everything that I just said to the slaves, you know that it applies to you as well. This is why it would have been so radical in the first century. In fact, it's radical even in our modern times. John Stott puts it this way, a scholar commenting on this passage. If you hope as a boss or employer to receive respect, you've got to show it. If you hope to receive service, give it. However, masters hope their slaves will behave towards them. They must behave towards their slaves in the same way. It's a call to serve. It's a call to use whatever authority and power you have, some of you, as a manager, as a superior, as a boss, as a person with social power and privilege to give away, to use it for the good of others. To relate to them as if you were them. To care for the needs of people under your leadership and taking interest in them as people. And not just as cogs in your personal machine. Doesn't mean that tough uh, decisions can't be made. Especially with respect to finances or employment. But even then, that those in authority would treat others that are entrusted to them with truth and kindness and justice and respect. And not just when it works to your advantage. You know, not just when it it pays to take good care of your employees, but even when it doesn't, which mean obedience to this might cost you some. But it's what it means to be more like Jesus. Where employers are called to stop using threats, stop manipulating, stop punishing, stop condescending. It is fine, of course, to have accountability and consequences for bad work, okay. But the apostle is talking about using fear as the primary motivator for productivity. Sort of an abuse of authority. A relationship that's based purely on threats is not human, let alone brotherly amongst Christians. 
Don't abuse your authority. And lastly, don't be preoccupied with your status and your privilege. A call to humility. He reminds the employer, the master, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. He treats you both the same. You are called to account. Even as exalted as you might be in the eyes of man, Jesus gives you no favoritism and partiality. He's master of both slave and slave owner. Have you operated in relationship to the one who is called your master? Whether you have a lot of authority or you feel like you have none, whether if you're an employer, a boss, a manager, a supervisor, or if you feel like you are at the bottom of the ladder. Do you understand that all of us, if you're in relationship with Jesus, have in him a true master, a true master who uses his authority to lift you up, who as an act of great power allows himself to be killed and sacrificed to love you, to have you, that you might belong to him. A master who lifts up your dignity, not strips you of dignity. A master who forgives you when you screw up. A master who flogged himself on the cross in your place. A master who is a joy to serve. Who even says, look, call me not just master, though I am that, but also friend, even brother. Because I'm your savior. That you can look to him and say, I do belong to him. Because he purchased my life by his blood. The blood of a servant, the blood, in fact, of a master who made himself my slave. This is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus here to both those who have authority and those who don't, to both master and to slave, to employer and to employee, is saying, be like me. Have you experienced a bit of me lately? Be imitators of me as the spirit of me changes your life. If you have authority, use it to serve. If you're under authority, honor and respect and love, faithful to your call. It's a radical thing that is hard to grapple with, but important to apply. Whom are you serving, dear friends? Tomorrow morning, even today, whom is it that you are serving? We're told it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're asking that you would give us your spirit, that we might apply this in deep and penetrating ways. I pray that you would lift us up with great hope. Some of us that are lost in the trenches, discouraged, beat up. Some of us who need to be humbled because of the ways that we've been thrown around our power or our office or our leadership post in a way that just works for our good and no one else's. So whatever you need to do in our lives and in our heart, Jesus, would you please do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Let's sing. Let's stand up together.